continued gridlock and inaction at state and federal levels? What local tools do cities have to support renewable energy? In this episode of Local Energy Rules, John Farrell, Director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance's Energy Democracy Initiative, is joined by Minneapolis City Council member Jeremy Schrader, who has been a vocal leader in City Hall on local energy and climate solutions. The two spoke for a recent episode of the Institute's Building Local Power podcast, which we have reproduced here to highlight the city's unique partnership with its incumbent utility companies and how the city is leading locally to address climate change. This is Local Energy Rules, a podcast sharing powerful stories about local renewable energy. I'm John Farrell, co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. With me this week is Jeremy Schrader, city council member in Minneapolis, Minnesota, along with his policy aide and former Institute staffer, Carly Weinman. Jeremy, welcome to the program. Hello, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Carly, welcome back. Thanks, John. Carly says she's just going to sit and watch this amazing conversation, but uh, you never know. She may feel an an urge to jump back in. But at any rate, we have lots of stuff to talk about today. Uh, What I'm most excited to talk about is, in general, the power of cities. So as the federal government has become less relevant and also an administration that's failing to lead on many major economic issues from climate change to economic concentration, cities have been stepping up. In the energy sector, the challenges for cities overlap. As in more than 30 states, including Minnesota, the utility companies that provide electricity or gas service have monopolies that are given to them by the state. So cities don't control the utilities or where their energy comes from. And yet Minneapolis is one of 100 cities that have, for example, committed to get 100% of its electricity from renewable resources in a decade. So Jeremy, I want to start off by just asking you what I hope is a relatively simple question, which is why has Minneapolis made this commitment to 100% renewable electricity? The simple answer is we have to. You know, something we get the same data the federal government, the state government does. And when you look at that, uh, we have to act now. If we are serious about stopping and reversing climate change, the time to act was a long time ago. Um, now we have to take uh, much more immediate action, uh, much more uh, like tougher action. Uh, we would hope for the, you know, the bodies of government that have the resources like the federal government, like the state government to be leading. Uh, but that hasn't happened, not just in Minnesota, but across the nation. So you see cities step up with what they have. And we've had to be pretty creative. Uh, we've had to really be be scrappy about how we do that. Um, but it doesn't supplement for what, what we would hope to see from the federal government and from our state government. When it comes to achieving renewable energy goals, so the powers of cities vary a lot. Uh, we've talked before on my energy podcast and on building local power that there are some like 2,000 cities across the, the country that actually own their own utility company. Uh, there's a few hundred more that are part of what are called community choice programs, which allows the city to choose their energy supplier. What power does Minneapolis have in order to achieve this 100% renewable electricity goal that is so urgent? That's a great question. I mean, it certainly would be easier if we'd be able to, to have the choice that a lot of other cities have. Um, but we do have an opportunity that other cities don't. Like we have some leverage uh, with our utility company uh, companies called the Clean Energy Partnership. I know you've talked about that before. Uh, but it, it's something that we um, as a city have entered in with our utilities to really say these are our uh, clean energy goals. Uh, we want to meet those. Uh, we hope that can be a beneficial partnership for um, not just the, all the residents of Minneapolis, but for utility companies that you know claim that they want to be at the same place, that they want a clean, renewable future too. Um, and we're hoping that we can be um, kind of that test case that can make, uh, make that possible. You know, I was wondering if you could give an example of 
a way in which this clean energy partnership is trying to leverage both the, the power of the utility companies over the energy, providing the energy and, and the power of the city? Is there some policy that's come about for, as part of this partnership? Are there interesting ways that they have been working together? I, I think the, the jury's still out on whether this is the best and most effective way to do that. Um, it has been, I, I, I sit on the Clean Energy Partnership with two other city council members, and we've been there a year. Uh, so when you ask about specific policy outcomes like that, I, I would be very skeptical about. I mean, we have plans. Uh, we have some policies that we're uh, hopeful of. Um, an example of one would be inclusive financing. It's a, a policy that if we can work that, everyone, including the utilities, is committed to working towards. Uh, but again, that's also in its infancy. If we're able to have inclusive financing, commonly called the kind of a pay-as-you-save pay model. Uh, I'm in the room with two experts, so if I pause a little, <laughs> I'm waiting for you two to jump in. Um, but it, something like that is going to be able to let uh, folks that don't have access to um, energy efficiency, you know, we call them upgrades, but I mean, as time goes on, these are needed things for their household. Um, they're going to have access. And if the utility can help us leverage that, um, as well as look out for their con consumers, I think the Clean Energy Partnership would, would be a benefit. You know, it, it was even before you took office uh, uh, just uh, last year, but um, the Clean Energy Partnership really began about five years ago, and I was intimately involved in it. For people who want to hear more, you can go to our local Energy Rules podcast. We've done a couple of things. I believe Carly was the interviewer in one of those, uh, interviewing me about the work that uh, took part in leading up to the partnership. Um, and it was kind of an alternative to the city actually going through on a utility takeover. So, you know, of these 2,000 cities that have municipal utilities, most of them were formed 100 years ago and were the first utility to occupy that space. But a few of them are the result of cities actually taking over using uh, their power uh, of eminent domain to basically buy out the utility company. And you already kind of alluded to this, like there's some promise out there for this thing to develop, but it's already been going on for five years. And I'm curious if, <laughs> you know, if you or maybe if other city council members that have been around a little longer following this are feeling like you're getting near the breakup point, or if you feel like uh, you still want to keep following through and, and, and seeing what can come of it. I think that the start on answering that question, it's really about thinking about the residents of Minneapolis and what's going to be better for them. Like how we have an outcome we want to get to, and that can be, you know, interchangeable with different players and different um, ways of getting there. Um, and I think right now we are really trying to weigh what, how do we get there in the way that's going to be most cost effective, most inclusive, um, and and quickest. You know, how are we have that? So I think the, the I think the promise of the clean energy partnership is still there. But as you pointed out, like it's it didn't start with me. Um, it started many years ago, and so the clock is ticking. Uh, like we are watching the utilities pretty closely um, and and pushing them because I think when the clean energy partnership was started, it really it had the backing of all Minneapolis residents, um, and I think that's the power that the city brings forward to to talk in that partnership. But another part of it is the residents are holding us accountable. Like we need to make this city a sustainable city. We need to see outcomes. Um, and that's not just on the city and its enterprise, but on the utilities as well. I'm really curious. You know, it's it's funny what you say about this notion of timing. And I, I know I sort of pressed the question, but for some context for folks too, you've got Boulder, Colorado, which has the same electric utility, Excel mm -hmm. Energy, although a different division uh, from back in the days when the utilities were largely confined to uh, to operating within particular states as opposed to these multi-state conglomerates. Um, and, you know, they've been pretty much actively pursuing municipalization uh, takeover since about 2011. It's something that I've covered 
uh, in, in some of our writing, and we've talked with folks from Boulder for some of our podcasts. Um, and they're still not there yet. In fact, I think they're very close to issuing the final order for the takeover of the utility, but all this time has been essentially just building up to, are we going to actually take over? And meanwhile, the utility and, and the city haven't really been able to work together very effectively. So I'm, I, I think I share your optimism to some degree about this partnership being able to be a, a quicker way, as you say, but uh, there is a lot of urgency, obviously, in, in terms of what we're doing. You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't address another major policy change that the city has recently adopted. So, you know, it's not just in energy, of course, that cities are doing interesting things, but across a whole range of stuff. And so this is around the Minneapolis 2040 plan or the new city comprehensive plan. So we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to dive into a little bit more about the comprehensive plan in Minneapolis, but then also talk a little bit more about how uh, the city has been able to stand up to some of the uh, incumbent power holders in the different sectors that it's dealing with, especially back to this uh, question of energy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Local Energy Rules with guest Jeremy Schrader, City Council Member for Minneapolis, Minnesota. A longer version of this conversation was released last month as part of the Institute's Building Local Power podcast. If you are interested in broader topics on local planning, affordable housing, and more, we encourage you to tune into that full episode. Now, stay tuned for more local energy highlights from this episode after a short message from our Energy Democracy Initiative Director, John Farrell. Hey, thanks for listening to Local Energy Rules. If you've made it this far, you're obviously a fan and we could use your help for just two minutes. As you've probably noticed, we don't have any corporate sponsors or ads for any of our podcasts. The reason is that our mission at ILSR is to reinvigorate democracy by decentralizing economic power. Instead, we rely on you, our listeners. Your donations not only underwrite this podcast, but also help us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to grassroots organizations. Every year, ILSR's small staff helps hundreds of communities challenge monopoly power directly and rebuild their local economies. So please take a minute and go to ILSR.org and click on the Donate button. And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. You can help other folks find this podcast by telling them about it or by giving it a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The more ratings from listeners like you, the more folks can find this podcast and ILSR's other podcasts, Community Broadband Bits, and Building Local Power. Thanks again for listening. Now, back to the program. So I'm hoping you can start by just explaining for people <laughs> like me who are not experts in things outside of the energy sector, what is a comprehensive plan? Uh, and then I have a few other things that we like to know about what makes Minneapolis, why is Minneapolis essentially getting in the news for this comprehensive plan? Sure. Well, let me let me start with a little background, though. So a comprehensive plan, uh, Minneapolis is required uh, to submit our uh, basically land use plan. It kind of started as a land use plan um, to the Met Council. So all of the, the cities in the Met Council region uh, must do a plan. So as Minneapolis was doing a plan, St. Paul was doing a plan, Richfield was doing a plan. Um, and it happens every every 10 years. So we've been doing it uh, for quite some time now. This isn't the first comprehensive plan. And that kind of leads into some of your other questions. But uh, to go a little bit further, what it does is it really talks about kind of the high level of you know what kind of growth if 
looking at our um, population projections, how much growth are we having? And so where are you going to put new housing? Where are you going to allow for transportation? Where are you going to allow, um, make sure if, if affordable housing is an issue for you, where would you put that? Where would you put workforce housing? All those questions are there. 2040 plan is is more of a framework. You know, I, I think when you're um, fighting against, you know, racial inequity as well as climate change, it's, it's and affordability, affordable housing, um, it's about intention. You know, the density and moving more people is not, necessarily um, on it on its face going to fix those problems um, but with what will change is being able to have something like an inclusionary zoning policy something that I've been working on with the council president to make sure that when developers are developing um, they're held accountable to having some affordable housing and that's that would be throughout my goal is something that would be throughout the city um, and make sure that every neighborhood is is approached equitably to so that when people are looking at home uh, regardless of their background, um, they will have some some options available. I mean, we haven't really talked really about the kind of the energy efficiency and resiliency and what what the plan would do for that. Um, but it's it's the mixed communities that are going to be the most healthy. Those that have um, diversity of folks on income um, and background that are going to be able to to be resilient and be able to uh, kind of thrive as their own small community. Comprehensive plan is such an interesting thing, but I want to talk a little bit about some of the news that I was reading about it because. As a resident of Minneapolis, like you said, it was in the local news all over the place as the discussions were going on. There were lawn signs going up saying either people are saying my house is going to be bulldozed. There were other lawn signs saying we're all happy to have more neighbors. But then I started as the after the policy passed reading stories in national publications, uh, you know, getting seeing them linked to on, on Twitter or other social media. People were like, Minneapolis has really done something about affordable housing. Uh, in a way that other communities haven't. And you've kind of addressed this notion, right? And so I guess what I'm curious about is, you know, how much have we actually accomplished? Uh, I talked a little bit about, like, we have the comprehensive plan, but the next part is the zoning change. Um, That's going to be the part that you'll be able to see what what else is possible. The comprehensive plan is really the beginning. Um, As I talk to kind of my, my constituents and others, concerned about it. You're just saying, you know, you're right to push if you have concerns because this really sets everything else up. And mm-hmm. the comprehensive plan has this high, these high-level goals um, and the zoning really flows from that. So while we still have to get into the specifics, the specifics are written from the comprehensive plan. Sure. So it really is a balance of how do we, you know, be a good place uh, for people to invest in and really have um, people that are building buildings for 100 years um, how do we have that? And at the mm-hmm. same time, make sure that we have our core goals of being a city for everybody um, and a city that's going to be thinking about the next generation and our impact on the earth. So I'm also curious, too, in in terms of climate change, in terms of some of the other goals you talk about accessibility a lot. I'm mm-hmm. assuming that you know transportation is part of that. You know, the kinds of properties that we're talking about, we're getting you know more people in one space. We are getting rid of the parking requirements that would normally go with the property. Um, it, you know, we're, we seem to be moving toward a way that a lot of people are living now, like they're graduating from college, they're moving to an urban area, they're maybe not owning a car. How does this kind of fit in with this whole notion of mobility, which is something that a lot of cities are focusing on? And how is Minneapolis able to make sure that, you know, if people don't have access to a parking spot, they're still going to be able to get their way to a job, for example? Well, some of that comes in out in the planning development. Like as a development is planned, um, accessibility to transportation, to um, multimodal transportation is, is considered. Um, it is something that if you're you're in a transit corridor, um, less parking is going to be required. Um, but I think it's 
as you, as you talk about the comprehensive plan and as we think about kind of our, our future in the city, uh, it's taking on a much different thing. Like transportation's changing so rapidly right now. Um, what we are seeing is that the the things that millennials and like new grad, college graduates are asking for are the same things that many um, seniors are asking for. Um, and it's it's something that makes a lot of people want in their community. I wanted to kind of wrap up with sort of taking this back to the, the big picture. Um, obviously in the energy fields uh, where I'm most familiar but also in, I think, other sectors of the economy, there's some pretty powerful incumbent players. And you kind of alluded in our casual conversation over break, you know, that a lot, you've got a lot of new people on city council and you're starting to get familiar with the fact that, oh, we maybe have a little more power to, you know, direct the where the city's going to be for its future than we thought of before. And, um, you know, how has Minneapolis been able to kind of stand up to or even co-opt some of these big players and 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 what advice do you have for other cities in terms of them building their own sense of power and agency over some of these really naughty questions whether it's mobility or affordable housing or energy well i think it'd be two things like first uh, my advice would just be to to really concentrate on transformative change Um, and the second one is really bring all these the intersections of all these problems together Um, one one thing that I, i think i'm kind of struck by is just the transformative power, uh, like the need for really transforming these systems. Uh, an example that we, we talked about over the break was we've, we've seen with the, the new, my new colleagues uh, just an increase of a awareness of the need for affordable housing and a push from city council members when development's coming up for having that. And even seeing some developers come and say, well, we'll do this mu- a certain percentage. Um, and the council member going, well, you know, we could do better than that. And the developers come back with it. And, and I celebrate that as a win, um, but also want to take a pause and to make sure that cities um, learn that it's other cities learn that it's more than that. Like we still haven't fixed the system. We still don't require affordable housing. Like, I mean, that's something that um, an inclusionary zoning policy, it's not going to matter who's in those seats. Uh, the city itself will be just and think about how everyone can live here. And that that's the, that level of change we haven't hit yet. And so that's where uh, something I'm, I work on um, and my colleagues work on, but just know that that work isn't done. Um, the other thing for cities is really to to bring together all these problems. You know, as we think, you know, desperately about how we are going to combat a problem as big as climate change while looking at the affordability crisis that we have in Minneapolis as well as other cities, as well as transportation and its impact on all of these, how do we bring that all together? And that's something where there's there's so much going on and kind of the 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 energy sector, not just how energy is generated, but also, you know, how buildings are built, you know, how do we live? How is transportation structured? All these things have ways that can be, you know, more sustainable um, and more, more resilient to climate change. Um, And in the end, uh, when it comes down to it, cheaper, you know, we need to think long-term and not just the, the point we are now looking toward what the change will look like, but look toward what the outcome will look like. And look at, you know, after a capital investment, are we going to be operating at a much cheaper rate? I mean, we've seen some of that just with the change to LEDs, light bulbs, um, and to put it on a really small scale. Um, but when you think about all the things from owning two cars to how our food systems operate, all of these things, um, while they seem very daunting, that amount of change that would happen, um, when you look five to 10 years down the road, is that the world we want to be living in? Is that the, the way we want to explain the world to our kids? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really, it's, it's a struggle and it's tough, uh, but I, that's really where we have to go. 
I could pick on the energy sector in particular, but I'm just curious, you know, with affordable housing, um, and I'm sure that developers are pretty powerful folks. I mean, some of these are really big companies that do a lot of property development. Um, what, you know, how does, how do you as a city council member think about how to deal with that? I mean, how do you, you're in some ways taking on their interests, right? They have a particular way that they're used to doing developments. Maybe they never cared about affordable housing. Maybe they like to do a lot of parking. Do you feel like there's any backlash? Do you feel like there's any threat to a city in trying to tackle some of these thorny issues in a systemic way, given that some of these are pretty powerful entrenched interests? Absolutely. I mean, we are, I think that's what's held up change. I think what's giving me hope is it's it's not just kind of the size of the problem and how long it's been been there, like how entrenched the interests are, um, but they're seeing the same same world we all are. You know, we have, uh, we finally have some cold weather here in January, uh, but that wasn't the case, you know, the last couple of weeks. They know something's wrong and, and things have to change. And so when you're dealing with a developer or others, um, they hear the same stories we do. Um, and I'd also say that it's not, it's not just me. You know, it is every single person I represent. You know, they have had kind of their, their thoughts about what, what it is to succeed in Minneapolis Shaken. It used to be you, you get your kids to the U, they get a good job. You've, you've done your job as a parent. But now they're, they've got that good job and they still can't find housing. They, they still have to think about a really long commute in a place that's far away from family. It's something that's going against our values. And it, when people have that level of faith shaken, they're on your side too. That's really transcending everything from housing developers to uh, utility companies. Like it's something that every elected official right now is being held to a different level of accountability. Um, and I think we're better for it. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about what uh, work the city of Minneapolis has been up to. I obviously will be following it as a constituent uh, in terms of the work that's going on, but uh, it's exciting to be able to share what's going on in Minneapolis with folks across the country um, who are really interested in how to wrestle with these knotty issues. So thank you for your leadership. Of course, anytime. And thanks again for having the show. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Local Energy Rules, where our host, John Farrell, was speaking with Minneapolis City Council member Jeremy Schrader about the city's approach to local renewable energy and climate action in the context of its recent 2040 comprehensive plan. For more information on what cities can do to support local clean energy, we encourage you to dig into ILSR's interactive Community Power Toolkit and our Community Power Map, both of which are available at ILSR.org. While you're on our website, you can also find more than 50 past episodes of the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can sign up for one of our newsletters and connect with us on social media. Until next time, keep your energy local, and thanks for listening.